Spiritual Sword Media presents The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. It is evident that God had a very special place in his heart for his creation. Mankind, as you well know, sinned in the Garden of Eden. God had a plan in place before he ever laid the foundation of the world. The death of Jesus for sin. The significance of this lesson is realized in the fact that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and thus all stand in need of redemption. As we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, there are three things that I believe are borne out in our study together. The first thing that I would call your attention to, the prophecies of the one who suffered. When we talk about the prophecies of the one who suffered, of course we are emphasizing the scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures foretold of the coming of Jesus. Following his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus said to the apostles, these are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms, according to Luke chapter 24, verse 44. You see, the prophets of old foretold of the suffering of Jesus. As a matter of fact, two times in our lesson text, reference is made to the Old Testament scriptures. Peter, back in chapter 1, spoke of the prophets of old who inquired and searched diligently of the grace that would come unto us. He said they searched what manner of time the Spirit of Christ that was in them did signify, testifying beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. When we go back to the Old Testament, we find in Genesis chapter 3 at verse 15, that God foretold of the promised seed, the Messiah, his only begotten son, who would have his heel bruised. And of course, the reference is to his death on Calvary. And then in the Psalms, there are a lot of Psalms that speak of the Christ. In Psalm 22, we have numerous references to the suffering of Jesus and in Psalm 22:16, the Bible speaks of the fact that his hands and feet would be pierced. And then also in Isaiah 53, Isaiah in a very graphic and vivid way speaks of the suffering of Jesus. Peter recalls the suffering of the Christ. He alludes to two verses taken from Isaiah 53. In verse 22 of 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter said, speaking of Christ, who committed no sin, nor was guile or deceit found in his mouth. 
And then he talks about how by whose stripes you were healed. Isaiah in chapter 53, some 750 years before Jesus came to earth, foretold of the suffering of the Messiah. He said he was bruised for our iniquities. He said the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so there were many prophecies that foretold of the one who would suffer for sin. But then in the second place, let me call your attention to the person who suffered. And this, of course, would be a reference to the Savior, to Jesus. Look, if you would, at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Listen to what Peter said. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile again or in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed." I want us to just spend some time and talk about the person who suffered for us. And of course, that would be Jesus. Go back and look at Matthew in Matthew chapter 26. He begins to telling for us, he narrates for us the events that lead up to the death of Jesus on Calvary. He begins by talking about how Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. While in Gethsemane, Jesus, as you well know, took with him Peter, James, and John and prayed three times to the Father. His prayer was, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. Jesus here, desirous that God's will would be accomplished, no doubt wanting another plan to come to fruition if that would be possible. And yet, we find that God's redemptive plan involved Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, bearing our sins, as Peter would say, in his body, his vicarious suffering and death for us. Luke talks about how Jesus, being in agony, prayed more earnestly unto the Father. Following his Gethsemane experience, Jesus was betrayed by one of his own, Judas Iscariot. Judas literally sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. It's hard to imagine someone who is supposed to be your friend selling you out. And yet that's what Judas Iscariot did to Jesus. Jesus was betrayed and then following his betrayal and arrest, we have a chronicle of the events surrounding his trial. And his trial was nothing more than a farce. Jesus was an innocent man, and yet he's going to be put to death 
by people that are intent on his destruction, particularly the Jewish leaders. And they're going to use the Romans to put Jesus to death on the cross. And so we find Jesus standing before men like Pontius Pilate. The Bible tells us that during the trial of Jesus, of course, Pontius Pilate, I believe, realized the innocence of Jesus and maybe in an effort to have Jesus released, had him scourged. John tells us in chapter 19, verse 1, that Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. The scourge has been called the intermediate death. You and I today, we do not have probably a lot of knowledge about the scourge, but I want to just make some statements that relate to the scourging so that you can see the suffering that Jesus experienced on our behalf. Now, the Jews, according to Jewish law, they would only administer 40 stripes to the back of one who was being scourged. And in an effort to avoid transgressing the law, they backed that down to 39 stripes. And so those who were scourged would suffer immensely. Historians indicate that they would take a leather whip that would have braided thongs. Attached to those braided thongs would be sheep bones or iron balls. They would strip a man down to his waist. Some were completely naked. They would tie that individual to a post, and that's what they did with Jesus. They tied him to a post. They stripped him down probably to his waist, and then there would be two Roman soldiers. They were called lictors, and they would begin applying with force the scourge to the back of, of an individual. Now, the Jews, during the scourging, the Jews typically applied 13 stripes to the breast and then 13 stripes to the right shoulder and then 13 stripes to the left shoulder, which would come to 39 stripes. The Romans, however, they did not have a designated number of stripes to be applied to the victim. In other words, they could apply as many stripes as they so chose. So you and I, we're only left to guess, to hypothesize as to how many stripes Jesus had laid upon his back. Let me just read for you a statement or two that I believe gives insight into the scourging. And you can begin doing some research at some point in time in the future if you choose about the medical, the med, well, you can look from a medical vantage point into the scourging and then into the crucifixion of Christ. But let me just share with you some statements about the scourge. During scourging, the victim would experience an oozing of blood from cutaneous capillaries and veins until the wounds went deep enough to cause arterial blood to spurt out rhythmically with each successive heartbeat. In many cases, scourging was itself fatal. During the scourging, it would be commonplace for the, for the lacerated skin and bloodied underlying muscle tissue 
to take on the appearance in a quite literal fashion of shredded meat. Now, just a moment ago, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and following. And if you look at the word stripes as used by Peter in verse 24, scholars indicate that the term stripes in the original is in the singular. And the suggestion is made that the back of the Lord was such a mess of bleeding, bruised tissue that it appeared as a single wound. You and I, we probably have difficulty comprehending just how, just how painful the scourge would have been to Jesus. I tend to think that Jesus would have suffered beyond human comprehension due to the scourging itself. The blood loss suffered by Christ during his scourging would have been substantial and would have resulted in a lowered blood pressure and reduced flow of blood throughout his body. If this condition persisted, according to medical authorities, shock would have settled in, characterized by reduced blood flow to cells and tissues which then would lead to irreversible cell and organ damage and eventually death. So Jesus, he's been betrayed. He's been scourged. Matthew tells us that following the scourging, that they took off his raiment and put on a scarlet robe. Now just imagine that scarlet robe being placed on the back of Jesus with those open wounds and his chest as well. And then they took a crown of thorns. They fashioned a crown of thorns. Again, historians indicate that the crown of thorns, those thorns would have been approximately one inch in length. They took that crown of thorns and placed it on the head of Jesus. And of course, the head is a highly vascular area as it relates to the human body. So you can just imagine the blood loss that would have come by the crown of thorns. Matthew tells us that they placed a reed in his right hand. They bowed the knee before him and began to say, Hail, King of the Jews. Matthew also tells us that they spat upon him. They mocked, ridiculed, Jesus, and then they led him away to be crucified. The distance from the praetorium to the crucifixion site was about a third of a mile. Matthew says that they compelled a man by, by the name of Simon from Serene to bear his cross. Not much is said about Jesus bearing that cross. Typically we think about someone carrying that T-shaped cross. Historians have come to believe that rather than carrying the T-shaped cross that the victim actually bore the cross beam. That cross beam would have weighed about 125 pounds. Some have suggested that the hands of the victim would have been tied to that crossbeam. If that be the case, and nothing is said in the scriptures, but if it be the case, 
that Jesus fell beneath the weight of that cross beam. Medical experts believe that it could have resulted in blunt chest trauma and a contused heart. So Jesus falls beneath the weight of the cross. He's been scourged. He's been betrayed. He has been mocked and ridiculed and spat upon. And then they come to Calvary, Golgotha. Luke said that when they came to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors or the thieves, one on his right hand and the other on the left. They took spikes and those spikes were about seven inches in length. They took those spikes and they drove them into the wrist of Jesus. The reason they placed them in the wrist is because the palm would not support the weight of a victim on the cross. And so Jesus has seven inch nails driven through each wrist. And then his feet are fastened to that cross. They, they then would place that cross in the ground. Historians talk about the crucifixion. It is traced back to the Persians they're the ones that originated death by crucifixion. The Romans, however, perfected it. And there were reasons why the Romans liked to use crucifixion. One was because of the intense agony associated with death by crucifixion. Another was because it was a lengthy process of death. In other words, death wasn't immediate. And so the longer the better in their eyes. A third reason they liked death by crucifixion was because they believed it served as a deterrent to others who might consider engaging in criminal activities. So Jesus has been crucified. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, referred to crucifixion as the most wretched of deaths. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to picture what Jesus would have looked like while hanging on that cross. Based on my research and the study that I've done throughout this week, it's my conviction that it would have been difficult for us to have recognized Jesus had we known him in the flesh in that day, he was literally beaten to a pulp. He would have been a bloody mess. Now, you know, we talk about the humanity of Jesus. From a human vantage point, think about Jesus hanging on that cross. He has been mocked. He has been ridiculed. He has been spat upon. He has literally been beaten up and his own mother had to watch him hang on that cross. From a human perspective, that would have been difficult both for him and his mother. Well, I say all of this 
to lead up to the third point. And that is the people for whom he suffered. Why did Jesus experience a betrayal, a scourging? Why did he undergo ridicule, being spat upon, crucified? Why, why undergo all of that? The reason was because God had a plan. And that plan involved his only son. And so Jesus willingly went to the cross for our sins. And so I want you to think with me about the people for whom he suffered. And the people for whom he suffered could be classified as sinners. That would include you and me. The Bible speaks of the reality of what Jesus did for mankind. Jesus vicariously suffered bled and died in our stead. He became a substitute for us. Here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Him who knew no sin, he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, Peter said he committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth. So what Jesus did, he took my place, he took your place. In taking my place, in taking your place, he gave his body and his blood. Listen to what Peter said again. Who himself bore our sins in his own body. Jesus bore my sins in his own body. When Jesus fell beneath the weight of the cross and Simon picked up that cross beam, the weight that Jesus fell beneath wasn't his sin. It was my sin. It was your sin. When Jesus was crucified on Calvary, you and I should have rightfully been the ones paying the price for sin. So Jesus gave his body and he gave his blood. Peter said that we have been redeemed not by corruptible things but by incorruptible by the blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Paul said, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Jesus died for our sins. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because of his immense love for us. Why did God give his son for our sins? Because he loved us. Listen to what Paul said, that God commendeth his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you ever wonder about, if you ever wonder about the question, does God love me, go to the cross. Look at Jesus on the cross. That answers it right there. How did God demonstrate his love for the human family? He sent his son to die for our sins. Paul would say Christ died for our sins in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is a personal thing. Jesus died for our sins. Now we talk about the reality of what Jesus did for mankind, but here is a second thing. The response to Jesus by mankind. The question is, how will we respond to what Jesus did on Calvary? Do you remember the question that Pontius Pilate asked in the long ago? What then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? 
That question was asked 2,000 years ago. It is still a valid question. What are you going to do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? There are two ways that you can respond to Jesus. First, you can be receptive to him. And hopefully and prayerfully, you have been receptive to him. If you've never obeyed the gospel, then today would be that day. In Acts chapter 8, we read about a man that was from Ethiopia. He was a eunuch. Some would say he was a proselyte to the Jewish religion. He had been to Jerusalem to worship. He's going back home. He was a man of great authority. As he's traveling home, he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, as you well know, talks about the suffering of Jesus. When Philip, the evangelist, encountered him, he asked this question. He said, do you understand what you're reading? And this man said, how can I except some man guide me? Philip then got up into that chariot and the Bible says, beginning at that same scripture, preached unto him Jesus. When they came to certain water, the Bible tells us that the eunuch said, here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? Immediately they stopped that chariot. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and this man was baptized into Christ. Here was somebody receptive to the Son of God. There are a lot of things that you and I have to make decisions on daily in this life. Now listen, we come to worship every first day of the week and we talk about the death of Christ and we talk about the events leading up to the death of Christ. We talk about Christianity and sometimes we do that in theory. And sometimes we come together on the first day of the week and our mind, our thoughts are far from here. And yet we're living in sin and unrighteousness. We're not living as we should. We know we're not living as we should. We've never obeyed the gospel, and the question is why. We come on the first day of the week. We either believe what we read, and we put into practice the things that we read, or we discard them. Sometimes maybe we come, and we're here for the wrong reason. Maybe our motives aren't what they ought to be. When we come together on the first day of the week and when we think about spiritual things, when we talk about the cross, this is life and death stuff here. This is serious business. You can leave here and say, it's not for me, but I want you to please hear me. A hundred million years from now, you'll look back on your life and you'll realize, you know what? The cross, Christianity, serving God, serious business. The tragedy, you were too foolish to do anything to respond in a positive way to the Son of God. You can either receive him or you can reject him. You can do like the eunuch in the long ago. You can be baptized into Christ, every sin washed away. Or you can walk out this building and you can say, you know what? 
It might be for those folks, but it's not for me. That's your choice. That's your prerogative. You may have even been baptized into Christ, but now you're back in the world. And you know what? You like the world, and you're not willing to give up the world. And your life as a quote-unquote Christian is a charade. It's a farce. It's a facade. Well, you choose that kind of life. But here's what the Bible says. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. One day you and I are going to stand before the living Son of God. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess to God. You and I are going to bow in submission to the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're going to give account of the deeds done in the body, as Paul said, according to what we've done, whether good or evil. The remedy for a life of sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. My prayer, my plea to you today, if you've never obeyed the gospel, you need to do that today. If you're unfaithful to the body of Christ, my prayer to you would be obey the gospel today. This is serious business. This is life and death, as Paul would say in Acts chapter 26. The bottom line is this, the ball is in your court. You can be receptive to him or you can reject him. One thing is sure, Christ died for you and me. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again and to see video archives, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul.